what we believe we believe. Why do I believe Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life? You want to be a Christian. You want to live the Christian life. But you've never learned how to live the Christian life. You are listening to Tellius Talk, podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. We are happy to be back from summer holidays. On today's episode, we will be addressing the topics of church attendance and church discipline. Church history and the development of the church through biblical history has never shied away from both our responsibilities to attend service together and to discipline those who meet with us. How do you react to an episode like this? How do your beliefs align with the teaching of Scripture? Join us today as we discuss such an explosive topic. Hello and welcome to Tellius Talk. My name is Wendell Martins and I'm your host. Today we will be discussing a couple of topics that make most Christians a little squeamish. We will be talking about church attendance and church discipline. After experiencing two years of pandemic restrictions and temporary church closures worldwide, we have seen a change in habitual attendance as well as a decline in spiritual attentiveness. For most of us whose churches were closed during the last two years, there was a temptation to church hop virtually just to see what was available. This has had a mixed effect on our local churches with some members challenging what is being taught to outright refusing to return to church. I'm not saying that the pandemic caused the decline in attendance and participation. All it did was give people an excuse to flip their hearts from serving God to serving themselves. So that's what we will be addressing in today's episode. Let's start with talking about attendance. Where does this practice of church attendance actually come from? To begin with, we need to look at the design of the tabernacle, the original tent of meeting, and realize that the idea of attendance was not an option. Let me explain. When we attend an event, we are basically a body in a seat. We are not expected to interact or participate, and our attendance is not always an act of willingness. However, if we see ourselves as being at a place of meeting, two things are true. We intend to be where we are, and we expect others will be there for the same reason. So, could we argue that in the days of the tent meeting, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, that attendance was mandatory? Well, when we read through the book of Moses, the language seems to suggest that the whole congregation, or all the Israelites would spend time meeting together. The attendance of the priests and elders was mandatory, but not that of the people. However, on some occasions, they would be called together to receive revelation, instruction, discipline, or feasting. This model of meeting remained tied to the portable tabernacle until Solomon built the permanent temple in Jerusalem. After the Babylonian exile, there is evidence to suggest that attendance was considered optional. As the Hebrew people became more scattered, their ability to make weekly, monthly, or yearly journeys to Jerusalem diminished. 
So local synagogues were put in place to continue provision for revelation, instruction, discipline, or feasting by the priests over the people. In fact, the word synagogue actually means house of assembly. When we talk about the tabernacle, we talk about the residence or dwelling place of God. So how we approach church attendance can be likened to our understanding of heaven. If we don't want to be there, we will not be forced to attend. But listen how David addresses the meeting of God's people in Psalm 36, 8. Lord, I love the dwelling of your house and the place where your glory remains. Church attendance, or meeting together, is an outward display of our piety. Matthew Henry says that David is speaking about personal devotion in this verse. Often, David talks about his delight in meeting with the Lord. He desires to be in God's presence. Is that the same reason we go to church? David isn't silent on this point. Consider these verses. Psalm 84, 1, How lovely is your dwelling place! Psalm 84, verse 2, My soul yearns for the courtyard of the Lord. Psalm 84, 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Psalm 84, 10, A day in your courtyard is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The Benson Commentary says, Nothing should be more grievous to us than to be hindered from seeing and serving God in his house. So is attendance optional or is it mandatory? In our book, Six Good Questions, I talk about the notion of free will as opposed to predestination. Everything is optional, but why would you ever exercise that option? There is an effect for every cause, a consequence for every decision. If you read through the Old Testament and study the ancient cult practices of the Israelites, you will find that mandatory attendance at the tabernacle, temple, or synagogue was not required. But we should, like David, want to be in the presence of God. Listen, meeting together is not strictly a Sunday morning tradition. Meeting has always been meant to be something available to us at any time. But let's not give too much rope to those who exclaim that they don't need a building or a set of rules. Those people who say, I can meet God in nature or in a quiet room at home. Remember the Bible says God is with us when two or three are gathered. Such a statement displays a clear misunderstanding of what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20. And it bypasses the basic point of what is being discussed here. Maybe they should go to church and actually listen to some sound teaching. Yes, you are right if you say the church is not a building. It is people, but worship is designed to be done in community, corporately, and structured. And that is not my opinion. It is direct instruction, which we read all throughout the Old and New Testament texts. Tony Evans wrote, People say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and they're right. Salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone. You also don't have to go home to be married. But stay away long enough, and your relationship will be affected. Consider these biblical texts. 
between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verses 13 and 17. It says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 to 14, we read this, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Corporate worship may have only happened during the feasts, but devotion was expected around the clock. Between Christ and his disciples, in Matthew 18, verse 20, we read, For where two or more are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. And this is probably the most used verse, and it does say we should meet together. Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Man was created first, and then the Sabbath. Matthew Henry says, The Sabbath is a sacred and divine institution, a privilege and benefit, not a task or a drudgery. God never designed it to be a burden to us. Therefore, we must not make it so to ourselves. And we have these texts in the Gospels which outline how we should attend. In Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25, it says, Let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people. Meeting is encouraged to build up the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, we read, When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. New Covenant worship assumes that we meet together, that we bring our gifts to edify fellow believers. And then in Romans 12, verse 1, it says, Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In Mark 10, 9, we read what God has joined together, let no man separate. And often this verse is used in the context of marriage. But Christian living is inseparably connected with Christian believing. It's just like a marriage. And possibly the error of our traditions was to loosen our practical faith from actual practice, supposing that an orthodox creed was sufficient. So our spiritual service of worship is to present ourselves to God. You cannot claim to be married if you refuse to be present. Ephesians 4, verse 15 to 16 says, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love work together toward maturity in Christ, toward the growth of the body. Weekly church attendance is in no sense required for believers. There are no verses that say that explicitly, but someone who belongs to Christ should have a desire to worship God, receive his word, and fellowship with other believers. 
So did Jesus attend church, or synagogue as it were? All four Gospels record Jesus as regularly attending synagogue. Mark 1, verses 21 through 28, talks about Jesus healing and teaching in the synagogue. Luke 4, verses 16 through 37, tell us that he attended and taught regularly in the synagogue, as was his custom. So it seems that Jesus intentionally met at the synagogue and taught the disciples to practice this as well. So what has attendance looked like? In the early church, Paul saw that the synagogue format was one which worked to bring believers together for organized corporate worship. Justin Martyr said, We hold our common assembly on the day of the sun, because it is the first day on which God put to flight the darkness and chaos and made the world. And on the same day Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. Augustine wrote, He cannot have God for his father, who does not have the church for his mother. If we look at Catholic theology, Benedict XVI put it in these terms, The Sunday Eucharist was not a commandment, but an inner necessity. Without him who sustains our lives, life itself is empty. To do without, or to betray this focus, would deprive life of its very foundation. It would take away its inner dignity and beauty. Reformational theology, as written by Martin Luther, says, To gather with God's people in united adoration of the Father is as necessary to the Christian life as prayer. Let's move from this topic to the second one on today's podcast, Discipline in the Church. All children hate discipline and correction, but as children of God, we have a responsibility to both accept and exact discipline when applicable. But what are the guidelines we are expected to follow? There are a few things that I would like to talk about. First of all, troublemakers and those who sow discord. Romans 16 verse 17 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. I was once a member of a rock band who recorded an album and did some touring, but never got famous. Our lead singer was someone who fit very well into this category. He had been raised in a very religious family, and he knew his Bible better than I did. But he would twist and distort scripture to make his lifestyle sound holy. There are many people in our churches who do the same thing. I can't even begin to tell you how often I am told that Christians should love everyone, but they don't have the first clue as to the implications of what they are saying. Jesus is love. He exemplified love when he was on earth, and he still identified people's sins, telling them to stop sinning, and acted on those who refused to listen. And yet, he healed the sick. He enjoyed meals with prostitutes and swindlers, employed the services of liars and thieves, and he died for you. When those who cause dissension and hinder the teaching of truth begin to attack the church, they often do it from right beside us on the pew or seats in our churches. They are our friends and our family. Their hearts are intent on sin and not forgiveness or even love. Scripture tells us to turn away from them, 
But what does it mean? The Greek word here, which is used for turn away, is eklino. It implies an attitude of deviation. This means we avoid them. We go out of their way. We decline to interact with them. Or we shun them. I want you to see the response we are expected to have with these people. The second thing I want to talk about is unruly and disorderly people in the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Being unruly in Greek society was used to describe those who did not show up for work, who acted disorderly, who stepped out of rank, or participated in irregular, inordinate, and immoderate pleasures, deviating from the prescribed order of rule. Sarah Kane wrote an article for Crisis Magazine in which she addressed one portion of this type of conduct. She says, Spouses in a real marriage can and must guide each other to God because they love one another enough to care for their eternal souls. A homosexual union, on the other hand, is an embrace of sinful desire in which both parties lead one another away from God, which cannot be love. It cannot be love to say to the other, Engage in this act with me at the expense of your soul, for I consider my pleasure to be more important than your salvation. When we read in First Thessalonians, we are told to admonish this behavior. This means that we are to urge by warning, but to do it gently and earnestly. We treat them like brothers and not like enemies. But is this the way we find ourselves acting? Almost never. We must help the weak to be patient with everyone. Discipline is seldom easy, but it helps when you start from the proper perspective. Why do people act this way? So often we ignore our duty to admonish because we fear offending others. I am often tempted to say, hey, be offended, but instead of whining and complaining, decide whether you are going to learn and grow or leave. Today's church ignores its unruly and disorderly members to its own detriment. And this is why the church is beginning to collapse in Western culture. We discipline through encouragement, help, and patience, which means we cannot ignore the actions of those needing discipline. We must engage them. This is not unlike the discipline of a child and carries with it a seemingly ceaseless effort to achieve even the smallest advance. But if we fail here, the style of discipline changes dramatically. So let's talk about those who disobey the great doctrines of the faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 13 to 14 says, But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So we'll see that this point builds from the preceding one. It is the next step of discipline if we choose to ignore the disobedience of the unruly and the disorderly on one hand, it will cost us on the other. Two words come to mind, compromise and capitulate. If we compromise on our doctrines, we quickly find ourselves capitulating to this barrage of attacks, and our faith becomes corrupt. We see instruction in this verse. 
which is hard to hear. Namely, our dissociation with those who disobey the clear doctrine of Scripture and the shame associated with that same person. Let us not confuse shame with guilt, though. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging, whereas guilt is a sense of remorse and the desire to make amends. The guilty person wants to repair that action that caused the guilt, but someone experiencing shame will do nothing to fix their situation. They need someone to step into that place with them and help guide them out. This is a pivotal role which we as Christians so often avoid or dismiss. At the same time, our dissociation with that person means we will not keep company with that person. Our brother becomes a stranger to us. And as a stranger, our relationship to them has changed. Our responsibility has changed as well. For those who deny the great doctrines of the faith, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-4 to four says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words, from which comes envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. This sounds like today, doesn't it? It's a very popular position. The whole doctrine of truth lies in this verse. What is truth? Pilate asked Jesus. And to answer that question, as answered in today's culture, it makes truth out to be a lie, an emotionally based feeling that has no bearing in truth whatsoever. This is why the church has addressed those who deny doctrine as heretics. We ought to be very careful about calling someone out as a heretic, not that heresy does not exist, but we must be careful not to call something a heresy when it is not, or calling someone a heretic who is wrong on a secondary or tertiary issue. Daryl Dash of the Gospel Coalition says, To call someone a heretic is not the same as arguing that they are wrong. Calling someone a heretic means that they have departed from Orthodox Christianity so far that they are undermining the faith and can no longer be considered a brother or sister in Christ. Furthermore, Michael Haken of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky writes, If a person knowingly teaches heresy and as such is a heretic, then by the way Christianity has divine heresy, this person cannot be called a Christian. This is a very serious accusation, and in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, we read this instruction from Paul. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Augustine echoed the words of Paul when he explained what doing theology in the way of Christ means. This way is first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And however often you should ask me, I would say the same. Not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon and set beside us to lean upon 
has set behind us to fence us in. Pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. But this has not been the historical reaction of the church, and we could spend hours recounting all the times the church has chosen to address its own heresy by excommunicating, shunning, torturing, and executing those who should have been shown humility, love, and godly discipline. Documents such as Fox's Book of Martyrs and the works of Men of Simons show us the sins of the fathers and how they pursued putting people out of the church. But if we must disassociate with our brothers because they have sinned, then we must also treat them like an unbeliever and share the love of God with them. We must share the gospel message that Christ died for them to pay the price of their sin. The church should love people in, and in that sense, our detractors and critics are close to the truth. But the notion of love as taught by Christ is an act of near impossibility. And to throw around the veneer of love as flippantly as those who would bring accusations against Christians shows not only their misunderstanding of love, but their gross disregard for it as well. Discipline in love can only be done through the grace of God by those who are humbled before him for those who require it. There is a poem that my father-in-law learned as a little boy, which I feel fits with what we've been talking about today. It is called, I Am My Neighbor's Bible. I am my neighbor's Bible. He reads me when we meet. Today he reads me in my home, tomorrow in the street. He may be a relative or a friend or slight acquaintance be. He may not even know my name, yet he is reading me. And pray, who is this neighbor who reads me day by day to learn if I am living right and walking as I pray? Oh, he is with me always to criticize or blame. So worldly wise in his own eyes and sinner is his name. Dear Christian friends and sisters, if we could only know how faithfully the world records just what we say and do. Oh, we would write our record plain and come in time to see our worldly neighbor one to Christ while reading you and me. Let us pray. Father God, I long to be in your presence. I pray that this longing would infect all those who follow you. Allow us the humility and love we need to discipline and admonish those who err. Above all, show us love and grant us the grace to show that love to others. Amen. I will be recording our next podcast, hopefully to have it up in the next two or three weeks. We will be talking about grace. So I hope you come back and listen to us then. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month, Telly's talk will talk about grace. Grace is clearly taught in Scripture, but how has the Church interpreted these teachings? Is it these interpretations which have led to divisions within the Church? Don't forget to visit our Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube pages. We are now on Twitter as well. Please check out at Telly's T and follow us there. Our book, Six Good Questions, is now available. 
please look for it on Amazon. We are always happy to visit and answer questions. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. We look forward to sharing with you again. Do we believe what we believe we believe? <laughs>